Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. So hi, everybody. This is Ethan Nickturn. And this is the Road Home Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Um, it's been great to be back on the air. We have some great guests, authors, and thinkers in the mindfulness and dharmic spaces doing really cool applied stuff uh, in upcoming episodes. Um, and from time to time, I like to share my own thoughts and sometimes uh, lectures or dharma talks that I've given. And so today's podcast is the recent lecture um, that I gave uh, when offering uh, for the second time that I've been able to do it, the Buddhist refuge vows, which is the formal step of a student actually entering the Buddhist path officially. Uh, as I said uh, at various times, it's when a student stops being Buddhish and starts being Buddhist. Um, and, um, you know, it's a powerful step along a student's path. So this is from uh, a time in October 2021 where a group of, I believe, 42 students uh, officially took the refuge vows um, and um, really had a chance to talk about what it means to become a Buddhist and to take refuge in the three jewels of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So we'll share that in a minute and just wanted to offer, you know, that... Um, Maybe you're feeling, I don't know if you're feeling this way, but that it's time to go a little bit deeper in your contemplation, in your study, in your connection to teachings uh, and practice on a regular basis. I'm always so fascinated these days by just how broad spread meditation is, the practice of mindfulness, um, you know, all of the great apps that we have, the um insight timers, the headspace, the calm, the, the 10% happier, um, uh, which I think should be called 11% happier because it's, it's real good stuff. Um, but at a certain point, I think it's important to embrace where the practice of mindfulness actually comes from, the philosophy, the um, psychology, the ethics, the spirituality, it's a whole deep, deep mode of practice and wisdom training. Um, so just want to offer, if you're interested in uh, looking into the year-long Buddhist studies program for 2022, that you can visit my website, ethannickturn.com, uh, or you can go to dharmamoon.com, which is hosting um, the 40-week series, which will happen live on Monday nights, starting in late January of 2022. Um, and um, also everything is recorded if you have to miss class sessions in audio and video. Um, and uh, maybe you're feeling that way as we head into the holiday season when people start to think, especially in a world that seems as on fire as our world, um, what to do next and how to go deeper and how to really have an intention for the new year. Um, so just want to offer that you could uh, check out the 
Buddhist studies program, if sort of this notion of like, how do I actually go deeper into my practice and study is resonating with you right now. And obviously there's many other options, um, but this is my podcast. So obviously going to tell you about um, uh, the things that I'm up to. Um, but one of the things I think we're dealing with right now is that the surface level interest in mindfulness, which is great, has really exploded. And um, at a certain point, it feels for a lot of us like it's time to go deeper. So that's what this talk is about. People who are really willing to make that committed step to their own path. And uh, I hope you enjoy the talk. And um, yeah, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Thanks so much for everybody who's reaching out and saying that they're really listening and um, connecting with the biweekly episodes. It's really heartwarming uh, to hear because I actually love of all the things I do. I love um, I love this podcast. I love doing it. And uh, please feel free to reach out. Um, all right. So without further ado, here's um, my recent talk on taking refuge. A lot of this talk that I'm giving will be working with this notion of um, outer and inner refuge. And it's it's awesome to come together to explore the practice of taking refuge. Um, it's uh, a practice that's done in pretty much every Buddhist contemplative tradition. It's done differently. And tomorrow we have this ceremony that, that does come originally through um, the Tibetan heritage um, of the Kagyu tradition and, and Chogyam Trungpa formally taking the refuge vow, receiving a Dharma name. The idea of taking refuge, I think, is a very central premise of Buddhism. It doesn't just apply to a formal step of uh, entering the path. Um, and I think it's such an interesting uh, analogy for um, entering a path, right? So when we become Buddhist, we take refuge. What, what, what an interesting like turn of a phrase. And it has its historical origins um, in basically the way spiritual life was more or less in the time of Siddhartha Gautama, where more or less you had this culture where society was arranged in these small tribal city-states, and that was called the world, was these little, little regions of um, arranged society and there was a strong spiritual life of people who had gone forth from the world uh, into the wilderness and pursued different spiritual paths so apparently it was common you know when you're outside of society and there were different spiritual wanderers to sort of greet each other by saying things like who are you and whose dharma do you follow meaning sort of like what are you into? You know, what, what, what spiritual tradition are you following out here in the wilderness? Right. And so when the Buddha became awakened and started to build a community of practitioners, that idea of going for refuge was really about joining a community, right. Jo joining a path. Um, and so this is kind of interesting because the notion of, of taking refuge does bring up, 
and I've heard over the years, many people talk about this as something that, that uh, sort of scares us, the idea of joining something, right? We were kind of happy doing our thing in the, in the spiritual wilderness, um, which might've been just in, in our case of a very highly organized yet chaotic society, um, you know, stepping from path to path, going from workshop to workshop, checking out thing, checking out thing. And then there's this moment where you say, okay, I'm going to actually seek shelter. I'm going to seek a home somewhere really. And it has this larger analogy of, um, um, being, uh, in the kind of more cosmic sense of many lifetimes, supposedly that we have each been a being of kind of wandering, not knowing where to land. Right. And Mingyur Rinpoche in his article talks about this, that like, we look for home in all these places that just don't work out, you know, and I, I know this experience very well. I'm sure a lot of, you know, this experience of like what happens when a place we thought was home uh, turns out to be uh, impermanent or fleeting, right. Or doesn't even have to necessarily be a false home. It could be that it just, it lasted for a while, but it wasn't going to provide true shelter when we look at what reality actually is. So there, there is some quality of, and you know, this is, this is in, in the title of my overview book of Buddhism. This is kind of where that's coming from, of being a wanderer, right? Literally the, the Tibetan word for sentient being is drowa, and it has this sense of always on the go or wanderer, you know. And there's all these turns of phrase in classical Buddhism about being wanderers on the path of existence and being kind of weary, you know, you're, you're sort of worn out. It, nothing, nothing has worked out. That that's the quality of sort of finding the Dharma. And you can kind of imagine, I mean, I mean, the Buddha's first Sangha, right, historically, um, kind of fascinating, right, who, who became his first students. It was probably the, the five people who were the maddest at him, who he had earlier on his wandering journey as he was studying Dharma after Dharma, hopping from approach to approach, different meditative approaches, transcendentalist meditation, extreme uh, ascetic practices. He had spent time with these five men who were doing these extreme ascetic practices, right? And the, the idea there was that this was a method for overcoming our wandering by um, denying oneself, right? Maybe if I can kind of take enough control of desire through self-denial, then I will kind of cease this always on the go mind that, that comes from endless desire. That was what they thought. And he eventually left. He thought the approach was too severe. Um, he was emaciated. He was tired and they were furious with him. And after about seven weeks uh, dwelling in his supposedly finally awakened state, not really knowing what he was going to do because 
he was at that point kind of at home everywhere. He uh, encounters them again. And you can imagine this. It's actually such an amazing transformation that they became his first students and basically his senior students. Um, and somehow they see that he probably what they felt was that he seemed at home. He seemed to have found actual refuge, you know, and then they started going to him for refuge. We want to study with you, right? We want to learn from you. We want to learn what you know, what is your Dharma? And we want to form a community, right? Sangha. So this, this idea of being in this kind of cosmic space of countless beings wandering, looking for that one spiritual approach, right? That, that, that one nugget, like that, that one Instagram post that really nails, oh, this is insight. You know, I'm going to share this one. And nothing quite landing and then finding a home in a practice tradition finding a home in a very human practice tradition. So there is this, this idea in Buddhism that, that everybody is a refugee. Obviously, that's, that's a difficult thing to say because privilege and social position in our world comes into play, which it was very much in play in Siddhartha Gautama's world with the caste system uh, and with his own privilege being from one of the two upper castes. But this, in an existential sense, in a, in a spiritual sense, everybody is a refugee. We're all just kind of wandering, trying to figure out where to land. Um, and so this is why, you know, I think that the Buddhist politics ar around refugees in the modern world should be very simple. It would be very, you'd have to bend yourself over backwards to be a Buddhist and not support taking care of refugees, accepting refugees, giving refuge um, to those weary of wandering wherever they come from. Um, I, I do know a few Buddhists who bend over backwards, um, usually with some very convoluted argument about how it's those people's karma to be in their position. But this is really what Buddhism is about, is taking refuge and offering refuge and offering a kind of safe support system for awakening to occur. So part of this is like humbling ourselves to acknowledge I've been wandering and that's okay. You know, I, and, and when you become a Buddhist, when you take refuge, um, it's not necessarily that, that, that existential dilemma of feeling unsettled, feeling not at home, feeling like things aren't working out, not knowing quite where to land, that doesn't go away. It just gives us a kind of structure of um, how to take up a path that we can actually come to feel at home within ourselves. And, and that's, that's this idea. And that's a practice that we can do every day. That's a, the three jewels are, I think, really are best used as just a, a kind of template for any, the, the three necessary components of, of any educational journey or path, any wisdom journey 
uh, would have in some way these three components. Um, and, and it's a good ongoing contemplation for each of us for like, how are these three elements coming up in our life? And the flip side is a really good contemplation. It's like, where am I taking refuge that isn't working? I think that's always, and, and Minga Rinpoche talks about that, right? We, we have our refuges, right, that aren't working. Right? And when we get into the ethical discussion tomorrow morning, this will come up a little bit more. But what I really want to say about that, you know, that all what so what the refuges that aren't working are basically the places we hide from the sort of discomfort required to awaken. Right? Now, I want to get away from any judge, judgments about your refuges, right? Because it's interesting. I was thinking about like, what are my naughty refuges? Like my my uh, 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 confused refuges, the refuges that don't help me awaken, right? And we all have the ones we're willing to share. And then we have the ones maybe that we're ashamed of, right? Some are outer, you know, Netflix, maybe, you know, is a good, good example of that. Um, some are inner, right? Like sort of the stories I tell myself, right? About what reality is or who I am that are, that are comfortable, but not actually awakened. Right. So you could think of your, whatever your confused refuges are, but there's no judgment. It's actually just a trial and error. There's this view of actually wanting to try and see what works to bring about well-being and happiness. Right. And it's the same thing. You turn on Netflix. Nobody turns on Netflix because they want to like destroy their mind into some zombie haze. You turn on Netflix because you're like, oh, this is a really interesting cultural moment going on in front of me. This is this is amazing storytelling. Look at look at the cinematography here, right? Oh, I really respect this this actor or actress's work, right? So so it can start out feeling like an awakened place, and then there's something about the way we engage with the refuge that turns it into this like hiding place. And eventually the hiding places, this is the idea of what it really means to be a human being. The, the hiding places, they fall apart. They don't work. They, they are revealed to be more suffering, more dukkha. So what is it that Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha offer, you know, and the Buddhist path offer, it doesn't provide, I mean, it does provide some level of comfort. It has to provide some level of safety, but it doesn't provide just a new hiding place, right? That would make it just a cult, basically. Like here, hide out in this story, like hide out in the story that the Buddha is going to save you the Dharma is better than any other teaching anywhere. This Sangha is really going to be, these are going to be your people. They're not going to disappoint you. They're not going to be as annoying as that last community you were part of, right? It, that's not what's provided here. It's the, the idea, I love it the way Mingyur Rinpoche said it, is when we're on the Buddhist path, 
It provides tools to transform obstacles into opportunities. Tools to transform obstacles into opportunities. And that is, I think, what this structure of the three jewels, if it's not a hiding place, but it is a true refuge, is all about, is about... um, we always have the approach when things go wrong, right? We always have the approach when things are not working well in our life, which by the way, is a feature of the human realm that, that things are not always like, it doesn't all add up. It's never going, you're never going to get it right as a human being. You, you can learn and do better. Sure. But like, it's always going to be slightly broken, right? And so the three jewels, I think, provide this way of looking at like when things are going, are when difficulty arises, do I actually want to use the difficulty as a means to further my awakening? Do I actually want to turn it into a practice? And it's, I think it's that actual transformation that makes a person some a Buddhist. I mean, there's many different definitions of a Buddhist. <laughs> the formal definition is one who has taken the refuge vow. So let's not get away from the formal definition. But what it really means is that a person who approaches the the difficulties in life and says, let me use this. Let me actually use this to deepen my experience of what it means to be human, to deepen my compassion for myself and others, to awaken a little bit more, right? And that's really an indestructible approach. Cause if you take that approach, you are actually always at home. Like, you know, the bus is late. Let me use it. Right. Cause your other option is to just find the mode of transportation that always works. Right. And there is no such thing. Or your other option is just to stand there pissed off because the bus is late. But with the dharma at our side, the idea is that you actually use the dissatisfaction as a path. You turn it into a practice. You meet it, right? And so that's the idea is turning obstacles into opportunities. That really, I think, is is the meaning of the Buddhist path. It's the the classic uh, lemons into lemonade approach, right? So I want to talk a little bit about the inner and outer meaning of the of the three jewels. Um, and we have this framework that Mingaram Shea uses and, and others use of outer and inner. Sometimes in Buddhist teachings, there's also this third level, secret, secret meaning. But outer really means the, the literal meaning of a teaching and inner means sort of the, the essence, right, that doesn't necessarily have form or shape. So outer Buddha, right? On the outermost level, this actually means the historical Buddha. Um, So I'm going to recommend for those of you who really want to learn more about who he was. um, It's a very long book, but you only really have to read the first 250 or so pages, but you can read the whole thing. Um, It's this book by... Thai by Thich Nhat Hanh, Old Path, White Clouds, which is his 
very Thich Nhat Hanh style, extracted from a lot of the earliest Buddhist sources of the suttas and so forth, sort of uh, biography of Siddhartha Gautama. And, you know, for me personally, it's interesting because in some ways I feel kind of no connection to the Buddha. Like my path feels very different, different time in history. Um, he was, his narrative is about leaving the world behind, you know, we're avoiding the world to attain awakening. Um, I think we really need to have more narratives now of like what awakening through embracing the world looks like. Um, so there's some ways I don't always um, kind of identify with Siddhartha Gautama. And then there's some ways like the, just the, the, the unwillingness to accept partial answers to the questions of human existence, right? He, he wasn't, um, whatever is the opposite of half-assing your spirituality, um, I guess that would be whole-assing, um, really, really completely investing oneself in their curiosity, in their investigation, in their pursuit of what they're looking for. In his case, the cessation of dissatisfaction, the, the understanding of where ignorance came from and how to uproot it. Um, he, he really dove in and it was all he was about. He was, he was kind of singularly focused. And I think there's something so beautiful to look up to, but there's also kind of a binding factor here, which is that Every Buddhist on the planet, whether they're projecting or not, whether it's turned into just a more propagandized image of a historical figure, feels a connection with this one person as a kind of originator of a contemplative tradition, right? So that's that's the most literal meaning of like kind of forming some kind of energetic relationship with a person who went all the way into their spiritual journey. A slightly less literal definition of outer is any example in a path that we're on of wisdom. Somebody we look up to is the Buddha principle, right? As, as whatever wisdom in a path we're trying to embody, we look to that being as like a mentor, a hero, somebody who actually knows more than us, you know? And I think we're in this really interesting historical moment where um, a lot of the hierarchies of why we look up to people are um, kind of collapsing. We, I think a lot of us, well, maybe they're not collapsing, but maybe our, our um, faith in them is collapsing, right? We, we realize we've empowered a lot of people for the wrong reasons or who, who aren't upholding the kind of values, um, right? It's, I, th I think a lot of this is coming out of the Trump era where it's just this sort of, you know, this is what a president looks like, you know? I mean, that, that, you know, I mean, you could imagine Donald Trump becoming the Buddha next, right? Just sort of, it's, it's just whoever can hold the seat of power gets to be the empowered figure.
you know? Um, so we live, we live in this era where, um, it's not so clear that we want to look up to people, right? And at the same time, it's so important to humble ourselves to the Buddha principle on an outer level of saying, you know what? I can't make up all of reality, you know? I can't figure everything out myself. I need mentors. I need heroes. I need beings whose wisdom I follow, right? This is the, the principle of taking refuge in the outer Buddha is like actually being willing to look up to examples of awakening. That doesn't mean it needs to be patriarchal or um, white supremacist or heteronormative examples, but it's um, we're actually willing to say the Buddha knows more of knew more about the mind or teachers. It could also mean the teacher principle. Teachers know something I don't know, right? Just as an epidemiologist knows something we don't know about public health, right? <laughs> you can't do your own research and get to where Dr. Fauci is. You need Dr. Fauci a little bit, right? We can't just figure out the nature of reality completely on our own. We, we have to humble ourselves to examples a little bit. And the counterbalance to that is the inner meaning of Buddha, which is Buddha nature, which is this idea that when we look to an example, what they're actually doing, if it's verified in our own experience, because it has to be, is they are um, just reflecting back to us our own sense of knowing, our own sense of wisdom. So we need outer examples to reflect back to us the inner Buddha, right? And that go-between is really interesting to me, that that go-between between humbling ourselves to examples, uh, wisdom beings, mentors, humans who hold, um, hold something for us and pass it down, pass it along out of compassion. And then at the same time, what they're passing down is something that's also innate to our own humanity is such a, is such an important balance of humility and confidence. And um, in that balance, there's also this quality that to become a Buddhist is to, uh, in the words of Chogyam Trungpa, it's a non-theistic tradition, which he was very careful to distinguish from atheism non-theistic means in his words that nobody's going to save us there is no savior and the view is that a, a kind of spiritual tradition that's based on some external salvation is just going to eventually be a, a false refuge on the paths of existence because it's not going to be revelatory it's not going to help us activate our own innate knowing our own innate wisdom and awakening. There has to be this balance between looking to others for wisdom and activating our own wisdom. And when we look to others, we can't look to them in a way that seeks salvation. We look to them to help us activate what is within us. So that's outer Buddha meeting inner Buddha.
outer dharma, again, the most literal definition is we got to study the teachings and practice them. Got to meditate a little bit. That's, that's a, another, uh, that's, that's the, so, so formal definition of a Buddhist is somebody who's taken refuge in the three jewels. Um, I've also heard the joking definition that a Buddhist is either somebody who meditates or somebody who feels guilty because they haven't meditated recently. Right. So the outer Dharma is saying like, let's actually practice and study. Let's actually be on a path, right? Let's actually be immersing ourselves in a body of teachings. One step less literally, it just means that, that we want to actually study and practice a body of teachings with um, curiosity with respect, with intentionality. So anything we take up, right, any journey or path, whether it's like writing, um, has a kind of um, uh, lineage and a kind of path of practice and study that has to be respected, whether that's studying law, studying activism, studying dance. You know, I um, have always um, been a writer. It's the thing that I wanted to be since I was very little. And um, I often tell this story that um, the, the poet Allen Ginsberg was a student of Chogim Trungpa. So he was in the same New York community of the um, Tibetan Buddhist Sangha uh, that my parents were part of. Um, so I, I met him, uh, a number of times as a, as a child, um, not really knowing who he was. Um, but, uh, one time he arranged for like five or six kids who were in the Sangha to go to his apartment in the East village. I think I was like nine years old for a poetry lesson, you know, and, I don't really remember much that happened other than him just encouraging us to write. Um, I remember the toilet in his apartment had one of those pull chains above, um, very, very old school Manhattan tenement style. Um, but there was, uh, there's some energetic sense that might be a projection because it was Allen Ginsberg. And later I figured out who that actually was and how lucky I had been or a projection because he was a Buddhist and in the same Buddhist lineage, but some idea of like actually passing on a Dharma of writing. Right. And actually, so the idea of being a Buddhist is when you study any Dharma, you respect it. You actually want to be a good student of whatever you take on as a Buddhist. Um, it's, it's a, the taking refuge in the Dharma is taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma for sure. But everything becomes something to be practiced and studied with respect, right? And, and the inner dharma is that it's, it's really about, um, again, same thing. It's about unlocking your own insight. It's about taking on anything as a path of study and having that genuine respect for it. And it's also about unveiling your own dharma, you know? As you, as you study Buddhism, I've, I've had this experience. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, that word that all the translators use, you know, um, doesn't really, doesn't really work, you know, 
it's maybe uh, with my experience, I'd say this other word is true, you know? And so we get to develop our own experience of the teachings and we begin to express the teachings through our own language as we gain more and more confidence with them. And we begin to infuse other bodies of knowledge. Everybody here has other bodies of knowledge that you practice, maybe that you've even mastered um, or semi-mastered. And those also get infused with the same view of the Dharma, right? Of being Dharma and being dharmically pursued. So the, the third refuge um, is Sangha, community. Often, this is where jokes usually go in about how this is the hardest uh, of the three. Certainly now during the pandemic, uh, this is the one that when I'm working with students get the most sort of lamenting questions about how do we establish this? Um, it takes work. It takes effort. You know, we're establishing a, a Sangha for just this, this period of time, this night and full day. Um, so on the outermost level, what Sangha means is the community who is practicing the Dharma with you. In other words, they are um, studying um, the same teachings and practicing the same teachings with you, and they can form a kind of support and a kind of feedback, positive feedback structure uh, for your path, you know? I mean, this very simple wisdom is if you want to maintain a, people ask like, what should I do if I want to maintain a meditation practice? You can work with all of the different rules of, of um, habit forming, et cetera. You can read all those good um, psych psychological articles about how to form good habits. Um, and there is some discipline involved. But the best way to sustain a meditation practice is to have friends who meditate and check in with them about it. Something about the relational nature of the human mind and our human experience is in this um, third refuge, right? And, and I think at least the Buddha was getting over his kind of avoidant attachment style to realize if we can get a, because he didn't have this when he was pursuing awakening, but if groups of people can come together and practice and support each other's uh, ethical practices, support each other's good choices, uh, it, it makes the whole thing easier, right? So the outermost meaning of Sangha is those who are doing um, the, the, the same practices we are and that we're in contact with. We have formed a community. I think another outer meaning of Sangha, again, going one step less literal, um, is uh, those who support our practice, you know, Th those who um, at least, you know, give us good habits and support and love so that when we um, try to practice, we, we can do it, you know. All of us, I, I, I personally think it's actually really important as a Buddhist and um, 
to have friends in my life who are not Buddhists, you know, who, who don't really care, <laughs> who care about me, you know, but we can meet in other languages. We can discuss and share other dharmas, you know, um, just so uh, one of the reasons that's important is because I, I, you, you don't want to get too insular in your experience as a Buddhist. And two, um, I don't want to lose my ability to talk to humans, you know, and interact with real humans. Um, and uh, so it's good to have friendships that are supportive friendships, but are that are outside of the formal sanghas of practitioners that you might interact with. And then, you know, the way I think of inner sangha is, I mean, the, the number one thing that comes to mind when I think of inner sangha is our ancestors, right? Our, our kind of ancestral lineages, our family history, our cultural ancestry, the lineages of whatever wisdom traditions we hold that sort of form this inner support structure. You know, I think it's very important because meditation practice specifically can be such a, maybe not lonely, but an alone pursuit a lot of the time. And we really recognize through doing it that we can't exactly share our experience fully with others. You know, that's, that's part of being on this path is kind of our recognition and turning from a kind of feeling of insufficiency into a sense of strength, our experience of being alone. Um, and so because there is a lot of this path that is about learning to be more alone with ourselves, the kind of inner sangha where we can call on our um, ancestors or our dharma protectors or um, the bodhisattvas like Tara and Manjushri who maybe kind of just exist in a kind of psychological or energetic realm becomes really important to feel like we have that support, to feel like we actually um, have a kind of strong community within us. Um, so, so that's the way I think of inner Sangha as being our ancestors and all of the protector beings um, that we can call on uh, to aid our practice, to aid our awakening. But if that's too woo for you, let's focus on the outer Sangha. Find friends who meditate and check in with them regularly. Right? And, and that's the number one way to build discipline in your own practice. Um, and then also, you know, there is, and I think, again, we'll get into this when we get into the, the refraining practices of ethics tomorrow. Um, there is a chance here to look at the sanghas that we partake in that take us away from awakening, right? That, and again, this is not somebody saying, don't hang out with those people over there. This is us kind of checking in and saying, who am I hanging out with? Who am I spending my time with? And how does it actually further the development of my human, my human qualities, you know, 
who who are my sangha right now and how does that help me move along my path? Yeah, so Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, right? I take refuge in the Buddha, the example. I take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings. I take refuge in the Sangha, the companions along the path. And this is formally what we will recite in, in the vow ceremony. The example, the teachings, the companions along the path. Those are the three, the three refuges. And it's also a good um, chance to look at, as you're saying, the, almost like the bizarro version of those. Like, who, who are the examples we followed in our life that were not wakeful, right? What teachings did we follow that were false refuges, right? When were we in Sangha in ways that did not uh, help? That actually took us deeper into our dissatisfaction, our stuckness, our self-aggression, et cetera. 